The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's no secret that we love Dory Clark here at Hello Monday. She's so much fun to talk to, and she's always got terrific ideas to share. So many, in fact, that she's the very first guest in the history of our pod to visit us twice. Today, Dory will talk to us about her new book. It's called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Now, we're 18 months into this different way of doing work, and a lot of us... We've kind of run ourselves ragged. I know I have. We've gotten accustomed to making short-term decisions, the kind of decisions you make when you don't know what things are going to be like next month or next week or even tomorrow. Even without a global pandemic to shorten our time horizons, thinking long-term takes discipline. But here's the thing. It pays off. We make decisions differently about everything from who to help to what conference to attend to what jobs to take. We are more clear. Dory invites us today to reimagine how we approach things, to slow down and think about what matters for us in a very long game. Here's Dory. I started thinking about this in early 2019, and the rationale behind it was I was just seeing so often in myself and in the people around me just this level of frenzy and this kind of niggling sense of comparison that came up so often, just kind of looking over your shoulder and like, wait, does everyone else have it figured out? What are they doing? Should I be doing that? Am I doing this right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and then also asking, wait, should I be doing this at all? Is this the right thing anyway? What are we even striving toward? And I started with that frame of just thinking about what are we optimizing for? Where are we headed? And then like the day after HBR offered me the book contract, COVID started and the first case was diagnosed in New York. And all of a sudden, I was writing this book about long-term thinking in the midst of the most short-term reactive crisis that almost right. any of us have ever experienced. And it became this kind of crazy counterpoint that in the thick of a time when all we could do was adapt, all we could do was just deal with what was coming at us moment by moment. I actually held on to long-term thinking as a bit of a North Star because over time, as I got burned out and frustrated and, you know, languishing like everybody <laughs> else, I realized that to me, long-term thinking is actually a way of fighting back. It's, it's literally <laughs> kind of a way to fight back against COVID and, and take back our agency. Going into quarantine and going into the pandemic, there's this experience that I think a lot of professionals had. You describe it in the book. When you described it, I had this <gasps> feeling in my chest because I was like, I have been there. And it was a particular scene. It was like 3.30 in the morning that your alarm had gone off. You were on the way to the airport in the city that you live, which happens to be in New York City. And you're on your way to this meeting in this city, followed by maybe this meeting in that city, followed by that conference that I really thought I needed to prioritize, followed by this favor that I'm doing with a, for a friend. But then I need to make this deliverable. Maybe you get back three days later and you've been in you know, X countries or X cities. There are two things about that experience that I noticed and that you called out. One is it's lonely and isolating in the moment that you're living it. But two is it's also kind of protective, right? There's a way when you're that busy, you don't have to actually deal with what you want in life. 
It turns out, though, that what we know about that experience is it's not necessarily the path to the things that you most want for yourself and for your life. And long-term thinking, as you define it in your book, is peeling back that experience of life to get to the bigger goals. That's exactly right. One of the themes that I talk about in The Long Game, I was doing research into strategic thinking among executives. And one of the things that struck me, I mean, it's almost bonkers. There was a study, a huge study of 10,000 executives, top leaders, and 97% of them said that strategic thinking was the most important thing they could do for the future of their organization. I mean, it was almost unanimous. And then in another study, 96% said that they didn't have time for it. And you just think, oh my God, what's going on here? I mean, of course we have too many emails. We know that. Of course we have too many meetings, but it can't just be that. And to your point, a lot of the busyness that we all face, I began to realize actually is self-imposed. It's chosen in some ways because for many of us, there are things we don't really want to face, uncomfortable questions about whether we are doing the right thing or just not knowing what the right thing is to do. And it's a lot easier to just keep doing what you're already doing rather than take the time to dig into that and interrogate it. Well, one assumption that you make in your book and that you really put forth is that we need to be looking at a longer time horizon for examining our success. And this is very hard right now, especially if you happen to work in technology or another industry that's moving very quickly. And you see entire startups born in January and sold in March for billions of dollars. And I don't know, maybe their founders retired to Hawaii. It can get very easy to get caught up in the like, why isn't this happening for me and this happening for me quickly? And you point out, well, actually, we need to be looking at a decade-long time horizon or longer even. You talk about somebody that you know who worked for the royal family. I wonder if you can tell us about that. Yeah, my good friend Martin Lindstrom, he's a, a branding specialist, and he consults for a royal family. And I actually have this early on in the book because I, I felt like it was so emblematic. For most executives, you know, of course, we're evaluated on these tight timelines, quarterly earnings and things like that. And even just for most regular professionals, our own internal sense of timeline is maybe a few months, maybe a year, maybe a few years if we really push it. But for a royal family, it is completely different. And this ruler pulled Martin aside and said to him, hey, I want you to know, this was early in his tenure working for them, we are going to measure success on a long-term timeline. And Martin said, well, okay, what do you mean by that? And he said, if this generation succeeds, then your work will be well done. We're measuring it on a generational level. Right. And it begins to really hammer home, oh, what kind of questions could you be answering? What kind of progress could you be making if that's the orientation, not just the next three months or six months? So if we stop to think about what each of us might want to accomplish in our careers and in our lives from a longer term time horizon, how do we even know where to focus our energies, like what our goals should be? So one of the concepts that I talk about in the long game is really sort of pushing at one of the things we, we often hear that, you know, people sort of throw off as a bromide sometimes about follow your passion. And 
I get so troubled by this, not because following your passion is bad. I don't think it is. If you're passionate about something, mazel. But the problem that I see with so many friends that I know and so many, so many people who are very successful is that oftentimes they have thrown themselves so much into their careers that they might hit a point where they say, okay, the thing I'm doing right now, it's not, I know it's not quite right. I'm not quite happy. I feel stuck. I feel stagnant. And they don't know what the other thing is. And you say, well, what are you passionate about? They're like, I don't freaking know. I've been working 70 hours a week. And then they feel terrible. They feel ashamed. They feel like this monochromatic, boring person. And I just want to say it's okay. We don't have to bang our head against a wall and not do anything until we find our passion. What I suggest instead as a framework is what I call optimize for interesting. Because the truth is we might not know what we're passionate about, like what is your soulmate career, but everybody knows at a really basic level if something's interesting to them. Like is math interesting? I don't know. Is wine interesting? Do you like travel? Do you like music? What is interesting to you? And just do a little bit more toward that. Move in that direction, have conversations, learn something, read a book, talk to a friend who's in that industry, whatever it is. But the closer we get to optimizing for something that at least is interesting, the more we're able to begin to head in a direction that is what we want. We've known each other a long time. I, I remember when you discovered that you wanted to write a musical. You went to see Fun Home and you came away from that experience thinking, I want to I want to put a musical on Broadway. You also set out a timeline for yourself. You said, I'll, I'll do this by 2026. And it was remarkable to me that you chose to write about it in the book because we haven't gotten to the end of that process. And yet you wrote about it in the book. You're exactly right that I saw Fun Home on Broadway. I was brought to the theater by a friend. It wasn't even my idea. And I woke up the next morning after seeing the show and I was just possessed with this feeling, this certainty of like, I need to write a musical. I need to learn how to do this. And so I just began going with it. I feel like whenever you get a very strong sense of something, especially something that doesn't make sense, frankly, that is a sign you should follow it. Because otherwise, like, where would that be coming from? You know, to me, it was just like, oh, this is a direction that apparently I should follow. And something that I am a strong believer in, and this is really where, to me, long-term thinking and playing the long game differs from let's make a Pinterest board and read the secret, right? I am, I am not a fan <laughs> of wishful thinking and like, oh, let's manifest it. I am a fan of coming up with big, ambitious goals, but planning for it. So I actually went and had coffee with a woman once, and she was this sort of big, like, magical thinker. And she's like, I have a vision. I have a plan. I am going to have a show on Broadway this fall. And <laughs> I was like, uh, have you been off Broadway? Like, like, tell me what is the rationale for this goal? Like, I don't want to crush anyone's dreams, but, you know, pre-COVID, this was not in the least rational. If you know anything about how Broadway works, there are 41 theaters, period, that make up Broadway. At any given time, 20 of them plus are occupied by long-term shows like The Lion King. They're not opening up. It is such a narrow band that you need to either have a major producer behind you or millions of dollars in backing. Otherwise, literally no way. So she just sounded like she was on crack. 
you know? But instead, what I realized is for me, having a 10-year vision of getting to Broadway, I didn't necessarily know how to do it. I didn't know what the precise steps were, but I knew that it was rational that if I were to work assiduously on a 10-year timeline, it actually could be practical. And so I'm now at the five-year mark, the halfway mark, and I have now uh, learned how to write musicals. I've been accepted to and completed one of the country's most prestigious training programs in musical theater, you know, finished this show that I'm now shopping around and trying to market to people, and I've built relationships over the past five years with several dozen producers. So I don't know if I'm going to get to Broadway by 2026, but it is not impossible. And part of the reason is that I think we really need to do a better job of scoping out our ambitions to begin with. There's a, a story that I tell in the long game about Jeff Bezos and a 2018 letter to shareholders that he wrote where he talks about a friend of his that hired a handstand coach to get better at handstands and yoga. And the handstand coach says the average person thinks it takes about two weeks to be able to master a handstand. It actually takes six months of daily practice. I mean, it's a 12x differential. And so ultimately, you know, no wonder people give up after two or three months. They say, oh, well, I couldn't possibly do it. It's me. It didn't work. It's not you. It's that literally people can't do it that fast. And so understanding the scope of what something takes up front is so essential because it enables you to make rational plans so that you actually can accomplish the right things. But Dory, the reason why I loved that example, the Broadway example, is because you haven't done it yet. And so it opened up for me and I realized immediately, oh, this is the fear. What if you don't do it? What if you just spend the next 10 years working toward it? What then? I'm actually not too troubled about that possibility. I mean, you're exactly right. I put it out there in midstream. This is not a fait accompli. People can watch along and, and see, oh, was she able to pull it off? But I have a genuine faith in my abilities to pull something off. And, you know, here's why. Number one, I think a lot of people get hung up on things like imposter syndrome. You know, there are shows that I have seen on Broadway. I am like, whoa, I could for sure write something better than that. I know I'm good enough to be on Broadway because a hundred percent it is better than that. And so I feel totally confident in that way. It's really just a question of networking and working my angles until I can get it on Broadway. Now, another point that I make in the long game is talking about multiple paths to your destination. And so this is the key, right? If Netflix comes in and Netflix is like, Dory, forget Broadway. We want your sexy lesbian spy thriller musical. I'm not going to say no. I'll yeah. produce that. <laughs> Incredible. Well, well, you know, we, we'll talk. We'll talk afterwards. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be Broadway. I'm open to a better offer if one emerges. And I think that sometimes we get so hung up. Oh, I have to get the job at Google. Oh, I have to get into grad school at Penn or whatever. There's a lot of routes that you can take to get to the same place that you want that's directionally correct. And that's what I'm aiming for. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we get back, Dory will give me some advice on one of my personal all-time trickiest challenges, figuring out when to say no. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Dory's great at saying no effectively. I'm not. At least not yet. I'd like to be. I want enough time in my schedule to say yes to really important requests, and I bet I'm not alone. So I asked Dory for help. So what do you have trouble saying no to, Jesse? Give me some examples here. Where do you get hung up? Um, you're somebody I like a lot. And I like a lot of people. There are a lot of people I like a lot. I'm an extrovert. I have so much energy from people. You're working on something you could really use my perspective on. Uh, you think it'll take 15 minutes. I know it'll take 48 hours, but I like you a lot. You want to get together and talk about it. Yes. This is hard, right? Most professionals... At a certain point, we get good because we have to get good at saying no to bad offers, right? But the problem is in these kind of marginal cases where, it, you know, just something is off. Like, it could be that you love the person, they're great, but, you know, this is like a terrible time for you because you have a huge project that you're working on. Or it could be that... I invite you to something and you really want to see me, but, you know, you you hate the band, but like, oh, well, maybe I should go with Dory. I haven't seen Dory in a while. Or maybe you get a speaking engagement and they're not going to pay you, but oh, but there might be some good people in the audience. But ultimately, I follow a strategy where I always try to be as kind as possible, but if I am not able to do exactly what the person wants, I try to offer something else. So that's often a strategy that I use. And so the question is, well, what could the something else be? And how do we downgrade it? Because typically there are standard requests that people will make. Oh, can we hop on a call? Can we get coffee? Oh, could we grab a meal? And so if I do want to help the person, I try to say, how could I be helpful to them? I mean, of course, you can just say, uh, no. But I try to think, is there a way I could help them that reduces the ask or puts bounds on it? So, for instance, if someone says, oh, hey, Dory, let's catch up. I want to see you. If I do legitimately want to see them, but I'm just super busy, I might say, oh, fantastic. Well, you know, Jesse, I'd love to see you. I'm actually having a group dinner next week with a lot of really interesting people. Would you like to join that dinner? You might meet some cool people too. There is no marginal cost in terms of my time to having you there. It's only a net positive and you will probably have a good time as well. That's a possibility. 
Another possibility, if you're willing to expend a little time, is, oh, well, they want they want a meal with you or they want a coffee with you. You know that's going to be an hour, two hours. You say, can we take the meal and turn it into a call because you're busy? You're offering them something. If you are so busy or if it's not a close relationship, what you might say, I do this sometimes, is, oh my gosh, Jesse, I would love to be helpful and talk with you about this new thing that you're thinking about. I am so slammed, but if you have a few targeted questions that you need help with, if you can email them to me, my schedule is crazy, but if you can email them to me, I can email back a response to you asynchronously. That way you can get it done in five minutes and... I'm always about killing two birds with one stone. You could potentially upload your answers to a website like Quora, which is a question and answer site. And so other people can find those answers or you can refer people to them. Or you can even write it up as a blog post. And then ever after, when people come to you, instead of sitting down and having to once again have this bespoke conversation with them, you can actually just send them that article. So right now we're talking about when other people make asks of you in your time. But I love the way that you think about what it means to network proactively when you're hoping to be able to make an ask of someone else in the future. And you have a long-term approach to this. I mean, you have a rule that you use for yourself now, right? I do have a rule. I use it myself, and I I might even dare to suggest that other people consider it as well. And I call it the no asks for a year rule because I have seen so many instances where You meet someone and you think it's a nice connection, like, oh, this is a cool person. We're getting to know each other. We're getting to be friends. And really soon after connecting, they kind of blindside you with some big ask. Oh, hey, Jesse, you work for LinkedIn. Can you introduce me to Reid Hoffman? (laughs) And they just want something ridiculous. And it's so disheartening because you're like, oh, I thought we were friends. And they just wanted something. And it's terrible when when that happens. It's also terrible, frankly, if the person, if even if that's like not your intent, but somehow the other person thinks that's your intent. And so what I like to suggest instead, over-index in the opposite direction. Don't go there. Don't let them think that that's your intention. Don't even subconsciously formulate it. Don't ask them anything, you know, that involves political capital for at least a year so that you can just concentrate on building a friendship. And the good news is that once you're legitimately friends with people, you will gladly do almost anything for them and vice versa because you actually care about each other. That point that you make is why networking gets a really bad name. I thought we were friends, but you wanted a thing from me. In truth, I think it is helpful to be really clear-eyed about what the business relationship is in that context, right? And spending a year building the relationship, like put friendship aside, lets me build trust with you and understand what your goals are and what my goals are and whether you're a person who I believe in and whose ethics and morals are in line with my own and whether you're a person who I want to support in the world. And that is a strong relationship that will carry you well beyond that one year that you have taken to build it. It will carry you into the future, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing 
how these long-term situations play out in completely unexpected ways. I tell a story in the long game about a guy named Haim who lived in Israel, and he was a volunteer for this refugee organization, and he got to know one of the staffers there. And they, they were just friendly. You know, they worked on projects together. They would do like holiday celebrations for the immigrants and refugees and things like that. And years later, the staffer ended up getting a job at a startup incubator. And it turns out Chaim had this startup. And so the guy invited Chaim to present and to visit with these visiting international delegations. And it turned into this great thing. Chaim got investment money. He got to be a board member for one of the companies that he connected with. There was literally no long-term strategizing. There was no way he could have predicted that this guy would have ended up at the startup accelerator, but it worked out because they had legitimately become friends. So another aspect of long-term thinking and working assiduously to a goal is that it's not straightforward. It's not a clear rung after rung up the ladder, uh, march to your destination or climb to your destination. And like, I know this inherently, uh, for example, right now I have itty bitty young kids and they basically mean that I haven't slept real well for the last two weeks. Like this chapter of my life is, is a chapter that is not for like the professional achievements that I expect to realize in the next chapter of my life. But you had a great way of, of adding a framework to this and you thought about it in terms of waves. And I wonder if you can explain that for us. Yeah, Absolutely. So often when I'm talking to executive coaching clients or colleagues and they're feeling frustrated about something, it's oftentimes because they really are working hard and they feel like they're beating their head against the wall because oh, I'm just do I'm just working so hard and I'm not seeing the results. I'm not getting, you know, the outcomes that I want. And of course, it's incredibly frustrating. But more often than not, the problem is that they are over-indexing, doing the same thing. And what you actually need to be doing is shifting into a different thing because our careers and our lives are in waves. There's phases where we need to be devoting time to different things and different activities. And if you fail to make that transition, it becomes in enormously frustrating because you're like shaking your fist at the sky, like I'm doing all the things. But the problem is you're doing the past thing. And so to your point, Jesse, I think that's exactly right. We have to be gentler with ourselves. You know, all these parents that during COVID, they're homeschooling their kids and they have, you know, all this chaos going on around them. They might feel incredibly frustrated that they didn't have the professional traction or make the accomplishments that, that they would have otherwise um, had that not been the situation. And I get it, but also that was the situation. You have to recognize you did all you could and there will be other waves and there will be other phases where the kids need you less and you can over-index on work during those times. So there's this one thing that I thought about differently after reading your book, and that is what happens after we get the thing that we think that we want so badly. What happens after we sell the company? What happens after our musical is on Broadway? Like inevitably... We wake up the next morning after we've gotten that really big job, the thing that we started working for at age 21, and we're still a human being, and we have to figure out what then, what next, 
right? And that's part of the waves. So I wonder if you can speak a little bit to how we set ourselves up well for that. In the book, I profiled Marshall Goldsmith, who is a very well-known executive coach, best-selling author. And he put it really well. He said, no one can be satisfied living a life that's about what used to be. You can't go from being the CEO one day to just sitting at the club and eating chicken salad sandwiches and talking about your surgery and be happy with that. And so in the concept of in the long game where I talk about thinking in waves, what I suggest is the quote unquote final wave reaping where you've made it, you've done it, you achieved the thing. That can't be the last wave. The waves don't stop. They actually cycle around again. And you need to go from reaping at a certain point, you know, enjoy it, live it up. It's great. But at a certain point, you need to shift back into the first wave, which is learning and finding something else to spend your time on. And so Marshall Goldsmith himself, I think, is a really great example of this. Close to his 70th birthday, he went to a workshop uh, that was uh, hosted by a, a woman named Aisha Bursell, who wrote a book called Design the Life You Love. And she does an exercise where she has people talk about who do you admire? And so he listed some of his mentors and she said, well, what did you admire about them? And he said, well, they were so famous and they could, <laughs> they could have been mean to me. They could have treated me like dirt because I was a nobody, but they were always nice. They taught me everything they knew. They didn't charge any money. They were really gracious. And she said, well, go be like them. And that hit him. And he said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so he started a program to kind of pay it forward, to assemble a community of younger executive coaches and teach them his oeuvre, essentially. And, and I'm actually part of that community called 100 Coaches. But he says that for him, it's been this enormous engine of learning, that he gets to meet new people. He has a reason to connect with people, uh, to keep figuring out new modalities. And that's that's something that's keeping him engaged and interested and not just saying, oh, hey, I wrote a book that sold a million copies, you know, X number of years ago. So much of figuring out what to learn is figuring out how to be a strategic thinker in the first place. And you have that great story in the book about this day that you actually had really bad jet lag. And it actually led you to sort of beautifully and elegantly step back and ask yourself some important questions. And it got me thinking about how I really haven't done that. You actually, you have a framework for all of us for how to do that, right? I do, yes. I was completely jet lagged. I was in St. Petersburg, Russia, wandering around, and I was way too tired to be productive, and I was way too awake to actually sleep. And it turned out that was actually a great time to do strategic thinking and make big picture leaps and associations. And that started me on the path of creating a list of questions that we could ask ourselves to really be able to dive in and think about where we want to go and what we want our lives and careers to look like. So in case anyone's interested, uh, they can download it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. That was Dory Clark. You can find her new book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, wherever books are sold. This episode reminded me a lot of some advice that I got earlier in my career from an editor at Fortune magazine. He was really a mentor to me, Adam Oshinsky. You know, I used to write these short pieces for online audiences, but I'd also report and I'd work on these longer pieces for the magazine. 
Adam always told me to save my best energy for the longer pieces, that they'd be more memorable and always do more for my career than the shorter pieces. And day to day, it was hard to believe him. When the news cycle kept moving and the internet kept asking for more, it was hard to hold back and invest in reporting those longer pieces. But Adam was right. You know, I got my next job, the one after that, because of the pieces I'd worked for for months at a time, not minutes at a time. I've always tried to remember that. So do you have a version of this in your own life? I'm sure you do. This week on Office Hours, we're going to talk about them, about what it really means to be a long-term thinker in your career and in your life. We've had some conversations about planning, but this is really more about goal setting. Now, we'll go live from the LinkedIn news page at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. If you're looking for us, feel free to email hellomonday at linkedin.com for the link. And please, share this episode with a friend. Ratings and reviews help us so much. They're a great way to help listeners find the show. We appreciate your support on that. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Taisha Henry. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer, Victoria Taylor, and Gianna Prudente help us think about our long-term visions for just about everything. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We're back next Monday. Thanks for listening. It wasn't as if you had studied music for a good part of your life or you had been to Broadway every day for a big portion of your life, right? Totally not at all. No, I wrote angsty folk songs like every 14-year-old lesbian, but that's about it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I did that too. Actually, mine was poetry. I definitely knew enough to know not to pick up the guitar.